The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, let's take our Bibles uh, today and turn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. First Timothy. And I'll just read the first two verses of Paul's first epistle to Timothy. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful today for the privilege we have to open up the Holy Scriptures, to study them together, and we pray that you would accompany our efforts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, giving us understanding, love for your truth, a heart to believe and obey your word. May you be glorified in this time together, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Some of you may have heard of the story of Mary Jones and her Bible. Any of you familiar with that story? There's It's a wonderful story. It goes back to the days of the great Welsh revivals in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, It's about a girl named, the story's about a girl named Mary Jones. Mary Jones was born in 1784 in a small village in Wales. She was from a very poor family. Uh, Sadly, her father died in 1789 when she was only four years old. But as a young girl, she was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And she longed to have her own Bible. But Welsh Bibles were very rare and very expensive in those days. Her and her mother would travel two miles every Sunday to attend church. I think they would have an opportunity there to read the Bible. And on occasion, uh, uh, the, visiting men, the, the visiting minister at their church was a man named Thomas Charles. He was one of the great Welsh preachers and leaders at the time, so she knew about it. At some point, she heard that Thomas Charles had Welsh Bibles that he was selling in Bala, where he lived and pastored. So Mary worked hard for six years on nearby farms, sowing, keeping bees, and so on, until she had saved enough money. But the only way for her to get to Bala was by walking to Bala, And Bala was 26 miles away. So at the age of 15 or 16, it's kind of depending on which account you read, she walked most of the way with bare feet the entire 26 miles across the Welsh countryside to buy a Bible. However, when she arrived there, there were no Bibles. They were all sold out. Charles offered her a place to stay until a new supply of Bibles came in, and he was so touched by that that he let her have three for the price of one. And this also so affected Thomas Charles that it led him to push for the production of more Bibles in Welsh at reduced price, and this eventually led to the formation of the British and Foreign Bible Society, 
known simply today as the Bible Society with its mission to make sure that everyone in the world is able to buy a copy of the Bible in their own language. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do we realize what a great privilege it is to have the Word of God, to have your own Bible, and to be able to read it in your own language? And also, what a wonderful privilege, what a wonderful blessing it is to gather here in this place week after week to open up and to study the Bible together. And what a great joy it is, I think, to have the Scriptures before us this morning as we begin today a new study, a study of Paul's epistle, first epistle to Timothy. As I mentioned last time, I'm taking a break uh, from the Gospel of Luke for a while as I've It's been my practice and habit for some time now. We'll eventually return, God willing, back to the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to be focusing on a new series of studies on this epistle, Paul's first epistle to Timothy. Now, the question that might come to you is, why study 1 Timothy? Isn't 1 Timothy one of the pastoral epistles? Doesn't that mean that it's written for pastors? Well, yes, 1 Timothy has often been referred to as one of the pastoral epistles together with 2 Timothy and Titus, but no, it's not just written for pastors. In fact, that this common practice of calling it a pastoral epistle can, in fact, be misleading. For though it's addressed to Timothy personally, it's not a private letter. It's not a private communication. It was written, as we'll see in the first verse, as an official apostolic letter, and it's addressed to Timothy in his official capacity as a gospel minister and an apostolic deputy who had been left behind by Paul to serve for a time in the church at Ephesus. And also, the benediction at the end of chapter 6 in the Greek text we don't usually have a plural for the word you, but in the Greek text, the, it's, it's given the benediction in the plural, indicating that, like the rest of Paul's epistles, this letter was intended for the church and to be read to the church. Therefore, there's a sense in which we could actually call this epistle Paul's second letter to the church at Ephesus. Okay, but still, why after much prayer have I felt drawn to this particular epistle. Well, let me mention some of the reasons. One is the great variety in the kind of teaching and encouragement and instruction that's given in this epistle in such a short compass. This is a letter that speaks to individuals, sometimes to groups within the congregation, and to the whole church. Also, it's not written after the same pattern as many of Paul's other letters like Romans and Ephesians. It doesn't begin in the early chapters with deep profound explanations of the doctrines of the gospel with long, carefully reasoned arguments, and then follow later with chapters addressing the practical implications of the gospel. No, in this letter, it just kind of rapidly moves from one topic to another with doctrine and practice mingled together in a beautiful variety of spiritual treasures. In fact, as we work our way through this epistle, God willing, there will be messages directed to the very heart of the gospel. The relationship between the law and the gospel. The wonderful grace of God that has been poured out upon us in abundance in the gospel and about Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners. Chapter 1 verses 8 to 16. We learn in chapter 2 verse 4 about God's desire 
for the salvation of men, about Christ and his role as mediator between God and man, and about his giving himself as a ransom for all, chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, and these things while at the same time addressing in that chapter the very practical subject of prayer in the church. And then later in chapter 2, the roles of men and women in the church. And then the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church, chapter 3. And also embedded in those chapters are some of the most lofty expressions and hymns of praise found in the Bible. For example, chapter 1, verse 17, we were just singing it. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In chapter 3, verse 16, we have what is also an early confession of faith, describing in beautiful poetic form the glory of the incarnation and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We read there, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Throughout this book are warnings against false asceticism and legalism and against useless debates and disputes about irrelevant things that only stir up strife. Think about Facebook, for example. There are warnings about false teachers and how to recognize them. There's instruction about the nature of a biblical God-honoring ministry. In chapter 5, about relations between the old and the young in the church. About the care of widows and the needy in the church. Women's ministry in the church. Paul speaks to the administration of the finances of the church. About relationships between employees and their employers. In chapter 6, there's careful instruction about the believer's relationship to money and material things. Words to the poor, words to the rich. This is a very practical epistle that addresses a whole host of practical issues about the Christian life and church life, which makes it especially a very relevant book for us as a church with so many new Christians and new members. And there is this great emphasis at a day when this emphasis is needed. It's very relevant to our own times upon the importance of truth, the reality of truth, true truth, absolute truth, the importance of holding firm to the truth, proclaiming the truth, loving the truth, guarding the truth against false teaching. Well, these are some of the reasons that after much prayer, I found myself drawn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. Now, as I continue to introduce this letter this morning, I want us to consider three things. First, it's, it's recipient. Second, it's occasion. And then, God willing, I want to draw attention to a few things here in the opening salutation of the letter. So first of all, it's recipient. As I pointed out a moment ago, there, there's really a sense in which it has two recipients, Timothy and the church at Ephesus, However, the letter is indeed addressed here at the beginning specifically to Timothy. It's written to him and then to be read to the church. We read verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope to Timothy. Timothy, a true son of the faith. So who is Timothy? What do we know about Timothy? Well, we, we know quite a bit about him. We know from the book of Acts that Timothy was from the pagan town of Lystra in Asia Minor. 
You'll notice in our text, Paul refers to Timothy as a true son in faith, or a true son in the faith. An expression of personal affection for Timothy. You'll often find such expressions of uh, affection for him. There was a, an intimacy of relationship that the two shared together, but it's probably also an indication that Timothy was brought to faith through Paul's ministry. And uh, this was probably during Paul's first missionary journey when Paul came to the city of Lystra preaching the gospel. You may remember it was there that he was almost stoned to death. Well, Timothy was probably converted during that first visit to Lystra, for we know that by the time of Paul's second missionary journey, when he came to Lystra, Timothy was already a believer, Acts 16.1. But we also have to take into account the influence of Timothy's mother and grandmother. His father was a pagan Greek, but his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were Jewish and they were also believers. And Paul specifically mentions the godly influence of Lois and Eunice in Timothy's life as a boy in 2 Timothy 1.5. He writes there, speaking of Timothy, greatly desiring to see you when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And then in 2 Timothy 3.15, he writes that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And what an encouragement this should be to parents, to Christian couples, or even to grandparents. Or perhaps you're a single parent. Or like Timothy's mom, your, your spouse is not a Christian. Well, learn from the example of Lois and Eunice the kind of influence you can still have upon your children and upon your grandchildren by your example and by teaching them the Word of God whenever you have opportunity. Try to imagine Timothy when he was a little boy. The son's going down. His mother calls him in from playing with the neighbor kids, and she sits down with her son, and she reads the Scriptures to him. She makes a few comments on the reading. Perhaps there's a a portion that's set apart for them to memorize together. And then she prays to God and prays for her son. And she keeps doing this over the years. And both her and her grandmother, uh, her mother, the grandmother Lois, they make it a point to regularly and earnestly pray for the salvation of that little boy. Do you think she could have ever imagined how those prayers would one day be answered? That we would actually be talking about him 2,000 years later? Do you think she could ever imagine how her efforts, which in her own eyes at the time may have seemed so feeble, to teach little Timothy the Word of God? Could she have ever imagined how those efforts would be so greatly blessed? Not only was Timothy eventually converted, but he went on to become a minister of the gospel and a trusted companion of the great Apostle Paul. He traveled all over the Mediterranean world, planting churches and strengthening churches and ministering the Word of God. And it could all be traced back to a faithful mom and grandmother who prayed for him and who from his youth taught him the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise unto salvation. Be encouraged, parent. Take heart. Keep praying. For that son, that daughter, that grandchild, church history, in fact, is full of stories of great Christians who first learned the faith at their mother's knees. Think of John Newton's mother, teaching him the catechism when he was a little boy. She died when he was very young. 
But years later, after living a a wicked, ungodly life, it came back to his mind when his conscience was awakened during a great storm at sea, and eventually it led to his conversion. The great Augustine, we were learning about this in church history last semester, he wrote about how his mother, Monica, travailed in prayer for his salvation while he was living a life of sin, and she never gave up praying for him. He wrote, and he's addressing God here, My mother, your faithful servant, was weeping for me to you, weeping more than mothers weep for the bodily deaths of their sons. For she, by that faith and spirit which she had from you, saw the death in which I lay. And you, Lord, heard her prayer. You heard her, and you did not despise her tears which fell streaming and watered the ground beneath her eyes in every place where she prayed. Indeed, you heard her. Parents, keep teaching your children the things of God. Keep praying for them, even after they've grown up and they've, they've gone away from home. So when Paul came to Lystra the second time, Timothy was a believer. <clears throat> and we're told he had an excellent reputation among the brethren. It was then, as a young man, that he was invited by the Apostle Paul to join him on his missionary team. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. So Timothy began his ministry under the tutelage and the mentorship of the great Apostle Paul. And his name is mentioned something like 27 times in the New Testament. He traveled with Paul to Thessalonica, to Corinth, to Jerusalem. He, was, he stayed by Paul's side when Paul was first imprisoned in Rome. He even helped, you may, you may have you ever thought about this or noticed, he even helped to write several of Paul's epistles. Paul apparently dictating and Timothy writing it down. For example, the letters of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, they each began with an introduction, and these are similar words. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Philippi. Or Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, and so on. Timothy also served as Paul's apostolic representative a kind of apostolic deputy that Paul would send to a place for a specific purpose. For example, here in this particular letter, we'll find later that Paul had left Timothy behind in Ephesus to set in order the doctrine and practice of the church. Now, it's important that we realize that Timothy was not an apostle in the capital A sense of the word. But strictly speaking, he was not a pastor either. Now, people sometimes get confused about this, especially because these two epistles to Timothy are called pastoral epistles. But again, strictly speaking, Timothy is not to be confused with those who are stated pastors and elders in a particular local church. Now, he was one of those like Titus and others who served as something like an apostolic deputy, an apostolic representative. Sometimes he was left by Paul for a time or sent by Paul for a time to a particular location or to a particular church to give guidance and instruction. Now, as such, of course, while he was there, for example, in the context of this letter, while he was there in Ephesus, he served very, very much like a pastor. He carried on the functions of, the past, of a pastor 
while at the same time he was more than a pastor. We might think of him as a modern church planter missionary sent out by the church to either plant a church or to help various churches that have been planted on the mission field. Now something else we can gather about Timothy is that at the time of the writing of this epistle, Timothy was still a relatively young man. In fact, there are at least three things about his peculiar makeup that are hinted at in various parts of Scripture. Again, first, when this epistle was written to him, he was relatively young. Paul could say to him in chapter 4, verse 12, Let no one despise your youth. Just a short time later, probably about two years later, he urges him in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful lusts. So Timothy was comparatively young. Now, we don't know his exact age. But if he was, say, 18, 19, 20, when Paul first took him along as his missionary helper, that would put him somewhere at this point in his early to mid-30s. Apparently, in the Greco-Roman culture of those days, the Greek term translated youth, it didn't refer to just teenagers the way we use the English term. It was used of grown adults up to the verge of 40. So he wasn't a child, he wasn't a teenager, but he was comparatively young for the position of responsibility that he held. Secondly, he was physically frail. First <clears throat> Timothy 5.23, <clears throat> Paul speaks of Timothy's frequent, this is the language he uses, Timothy's frequent infirmities without telling us what they were, but whatever they were, they were frequent. Maybe he had a problem with his voice on Sunday mornings. Maybe that was part of it. I think it's that air conditioning blowing on me while I'm sitting up here, but whatever. He also tells him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. So a weak stomach was one of those infirmities. Thirdly, there are also indications that Timothy was naturally timid. Now, ultimately, I think it's fair to say that by the grace of God, Timothy was a strong and courageous believer who served Christ and his church at great risk to himself. So we don't want to go too far here, but it does appear that in terms of his natural temperament, he was just the opposite. Courage and strength didn't come easy for him or natural to him. He wasn't the kind of personality who was brimming full of natural self-confidence. No, Paul had to write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 10 to 11, that if Timothy comes, see that he may be without, with you without fear. Let no one despise him. So Timothy may have been a bit timid by nature, and he could tend to be a bit fearful. In fact, several times in Paul's letters, Paul exhorts him to not be afraid, but to be strong in the Lord. Paul knew Timothy well. And he knew that he needed those exhortations. So this was Timothy, comparatively young, physically frail, and temperamentally timid. Or as Stott put it, he was young in years, frail in physique, and retiring in disposition. It's not the picture of a Mr. Personality guy. 
an impressive looking man with an athletic build, full of natural charm and wit and self-confidence. He doesn't fit the picture of the kind of pastor so many people are looking for today. An aggressive extrovert, gifted in marketing and advertising, an expert in cutting-edge technology formed on the model of a corporate CEO. No, it's more the picture of a guy who's a bit of an introvert, has a bad stomach, and looks way too young for what he's doing. And yet, he's God's man. God's man for the hour. Charged with the very important responsibility, as we'll see, of confronting false teachers in the church at Ephesus. Caring for and instructing God's people there and setting the church in order. And my friends, may I just say that God likes to use weak men and women like us. <clears throat> the fact is we're all weak. We're all totally inadequate for the responsibilities that God has given to each of us. But God delights to take the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And it's, through, it's not through human power and human strength. It's through human weakness that God's power is made known. God often chooses the most unlikely instruments to be the means by which he brings great blessing to his church. David, the shepherd boy from the little country village of Bethlehem. The one his father never even thought about, never even considered. David, when Samuel came there and asked to see his sons, not David, he was too young, too boyish, too sensitive and artsy and meditative, too inexperienced in the things of the world. Who would have ever thought? David? But this is often God's way. Our Lord's apostles are taken from common fishermen and hated tax collectors. The great reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther, is found in the cottage of a poor miner. Whitfield is taken from his mother's tavern. But God delights to make his power known in and through and and in the context of the weakness of his servants. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I think of George Whitfield when he went to preach one of his first sermons. He says, as I passed along the streets, many came out of their shops to see so young a person in a gown and cassock that was the dress of a minister one I remember in particular cried out there's a boy parson as I went up the stairs to the pulpit almost all seemed to sneer at me on account of my youth but they soon grew serious and exceedingly attentive indeed I imagine that they did if you've read about Whitfield well so much for the recipient of this letter Timothy Paul's true son in the faith. And what was the occasion? Well, as I've already mentioned, Paul, unable to be in Ephesus himself at the time, has left Timothy there. We read in verse 3 here in the first chapter, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. And Paul is hoping to come there later himself, he says in chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, and so on. So in the meantime, Timothy is there. 
And again, he's given this important task of confronting false teaching that was threatening the church, instructing the brethren brethren there in sound doctrine and practice, and setting the church in order. Well, having given all this background by way of introduction, I want us to look now at the opening of the letter, the opening greeting of the letter. Now, I'm not planning to open up everything here in detail. There's really nothing spectacular in the form of it. This was the common manner of beginning letters in the culture of that day, that part of the world. The opening of a letter commonly followed a basic threefold pattern. There would be the name of the author, followed by the name or names of those to whom the letter is addressed, followed by a greeting. And that's precisely the pattern that we see here. Paul is the author, Timothy is the recipient, and the greeting though he pours Christian content into it, the ordinary greeting would just be greetings. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, Paul is the author, Timothy the recipient, and then we have the greeting. But again, what was unique and really full of significance about the way Paul opened his letters, it was not the form, that was the common form, but it was the content. He took that common form, and into that form he poured distinctively Christian content. There's a lot of wonderful truth packed into this short introduction. We see this reference to, uh, he's an apostle, he says, of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He groups God and Christ together. He doesn't say the commandment of God, our Savior, and the commandment of Jesus Christ, but he groups them together as one. So we see them as one and yet distinct. That would be blasphemous to write like that if Jesus Christ is not divine and God the Son. You see the same thing in his greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's a lot of things here that we could look at, but what I want you to specifically notice, you see, though there are similarities in the way Paul opens all of his letters, They don't all open in exactly the same way. There are variations. In those specific variations, there's sometimes clues. There's sometimes reflect the recipient's particular need or situation. And what I especially want you to notice here is the manner in which Paul identifies himself. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. He identifies himself as an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one who is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the authority, the command of God and the Lord Jesus. Now, think about that. That might seem to be kind of an odd in a letter that's addressed to a colleague and friend in the ministry. Now think of me sending, maybe sending a long email to one of my fellow pastors here, Pastor Paul or Pastor Decima, or imagine I send a, a long email to Pastor Nick about something. And instead of beginning it with, hey Nick, or dear Nick, or just Nick, I begin it with Jeffrey Smith, <laughs> chairman of the board of directors of Reformed Baptist Seminary or a pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church by the will of God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, that would seem a bit out of place, wouldn't it? 
I mean, this is Nick I'm writing to. Well, this is Timothy Paul's writing to. Why would he begin by drawing attention to his unique office and authority as an apostle? Well, this reminds us of something I commented on earlier. Though this letter is addressed to Timothy, this is more than just a friendly letter between friends and colleagues in the ministry. It is an official apostolic communication from an apostle authorized by Jesus Christ. It comes with the authority of God behind it. It's not just for Timothy personally. It's for the whole church. And you see, this was also a way, you remember Timothy tended at times to be timid and fearful. This was also a way of making it clear to the church at Ephesus that Timothy is among them and these things that he will be teaching them from this letter and those things that he will be doing that he's called upon to do in this letter, he's not just doing them of his own initiative. He is doing them with the authority of Christ through his appointed apostle backing him up. And I think it's good for us here then to step back and to ask this question, what is an apostle? There's a lot of confusion about that today. What does this mean? What's the significance of this? Well, the Greek word translated apostle literally means one sent forth. Now occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally it's simply used in a general manner to refer to a messenger of the church, of a church or a missionary sent out by a church. You might say an apostle with a small letter A, but most often it's used in the New Testament to refer to the office of an apostle, specifically not a messenger of a church, but an apostle of Jesus Christ, referring to an office to which men were called and appointed by Christ himself. Now again, there's a lot of confusion about that today. You, you even have people today who claim to be apostles or to have apostolic authority or to exercise apostolic gifts. So I think it would be wise for us to pause here to consider this for a few moments. First of all, the unique qualifications for the apostolate. What was necessary to qualify for the office of apostle? At least three things. First, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to be an eyewitness. An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. This is clear in very many places. For example, you remember after Judas lost his apostleship, and in Acts chapter 1, they're they're seeking out another one among them to take Judas's place in the apostolate. What was the qualification that they required? He said, one that must become a witness with us of his resurrection. resurrection. It must be someone who was with us, someone who is a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you couldn't be an apostle unless you had seen the risen Christ. Someone says, but what about Paul? Doesn't that disqualify him? No. Remember, Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And now there were always those who in his own day, who tried to say that Paul was not an apostle, especially false teachers like the Judaizers that we learned in Pastor Nick's exposition of Galatians, saying he was not really an apostle. And at times, Paul was forced to defend his apostleship. And when he does, this is one of the points that he makes. 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen 
Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. You see, one of the qualifications to be an apostle is you must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ. A second qualification to be an apostle is that you had to have been directly, not, not me, in, in a mediated way through the church officials or something of the, like I was in a, it was my calling to be a pastor was mediated through the, the church body and its recognition and election and so forth and the laying on of hands of the elders. But an, to be an apostle, you had to have been directly called and appointed to that office by Jesus Christ himself. This was the case for the original 12. For example, we read in Luke 6, 12 to 13, speaking of Jesus. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. You see, apostles, not just another name for disciple. All Christians are disciples of Christ. But from among his disciples, Jesus chose 12 to be apostles. And the same thing happened to Paul. Not only was he converted on the road to Damascus, he was also called by Christ to be an apostle. We read in Paul's account of that experience before Agrippa that Jesus said to him, For I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness, an eyewitness of both the things <clears throat> which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. He was called as an official sent one, an official apostle of Jesus Christ and eyewitness of his resurrection. The third mark of an apostle was they were given a unique supernatural endowment of the Holy Spirit for two related purposes. First of all, in order to enable them to speak the very word of God by divine revelation and inspiration as the representatives of Christ. You remember, Jesus was speaking specifically to the apostles. We forget this sometimes when we read these, cha these later chapters in John, but he was speaking specifically to the apostles when he said in John 12, 16, 12 and following, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. That was a promise of divine revelation and inspiration given to the apostles. Paul could write of himself in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-seven and following, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. His writings are on the same level as the commandments of the Lord. He spoke by divine revelation and inspiration. You see, when I stand up here to preach, I'm not giving to you new revelations from God. I'm not speaking by divine inspiration. I'm taking that revelation that was inspired by God, has been given to us, and has been inscripturated for us, and I'm opening it up, and I'm explaining it. 
But you see, the apostles were authorized to speak by their authority, by Christ's authority as his representatives by divine inspiration. Conveying to the church the revelation of Jesus Christ as the unique representatives of Christ to the church. And this special endowment of the Spirit was also given to them in order to enable them to back up this unique authority and divine authority of their words by supernatural signs and wonders. Things such as being able to impart spiritual gifts to others by the laying on of their hands, the performing of miracles and healings and so on. What the Bible specifically refers to as the signs of an apostle. For example, Paul, again defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So this unusual supernatural endowment of the Spirit was granted by Christ to the the apostles so that what they wrote, what they have handed down to us in our Bibles was written by divine inspiration and is the very Word of God and in confirmation of their unique authority, they were enabled to perform the signs of an apostle. Now, what are some practical lessons we can learn from this? Well, first of all, this tells us that anyone who comes along today claiming to be an apostle is either a liar or they're terribly, terribly deceived. Can there be any apostles today? No. And one reason is that the qualifications for the office are historically unique and unrepeatable. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You had to be face-to-face directly called and appointed to the office by Christ himself. And there's no one who qualifies for that today. And remember the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The revelatory foundation of the church is laid in the ministry of the prophets and the, the apostles and the prophets. Now, we're not still laying the foundation. The revelatory foundation of the church has already been laid, and we have it here in God's Word, the Scriptures. Uh, So there's no place for apostles today. Their work has been done. We have it in our Bibles. So not only are the qualifications to be an apostle historically unique and unrepeatable, since the formation and completion now of the New Testament canon, there's no longer any need for apostles. We already have the finished and completed revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And then let me add, since the living apostolate no longer exists, and since the scriptures are complete, the signs of an apostle are no longer necessary either. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that after the death of the apostles, those signs began to cease. With the exception, of course, of various fanatical groups who have popped up from time to time in the history of the church who have tried to resurrect them and to claim to have them. So learn from this. Don't be deceived by someone who comes along claiming to be an apostle or who claims to have been given this endowment of apostolic gifts of healing and so forth. They're all over the television. Apostle so-and-so claiming to heal people and 
all kinds of stuff. You know, I was watching one guy, he actually claimed to get rid of your debts, and I thought, that would be great, man. People, people would send in their debts, and he, puts his, he, he would read this person's debt and lay his hands upon it and pray and say, debt be gone. Yeah, so you, but of course you had to send him money to get it, so then you get worse in debt, so it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? You keep sending money, you keep giving your debt. But anyway, it's not always that, that, that obvious, but, but be very careful. These, these, these kinds of imposters and false apostles are rampant in our society today, not just here, but around the world. But now having said that, Paul was a true apostle as we get back to our text. And he doesn't want the brothers and sisters in Ephesus to forget that, so he reminds them of it right here at the beginning of his letter to Timothy. This is intended to remind them and to remind us that this epistle is not just any old letter that any Christian might write in general to one of his friends or something like that. This is not merely a human book. It is a message from God to us. It is the very word of God. This letter comes to us with the authority of Jesus Christ behind it. Now, people today don't like authority. They especially don't like, they don't like it when people make absolute truth claims. But God's word does not come to us as a mere option out of many valid choices. And this epistle doesn't come to us merely as Paul's personal opinion or as the early church's opinion about these things. Paul writes this epistle as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and therefore this comes to us as God's infallible, authoritative word for you and for me and for everyone else in the world throughout the entire history of the Christian church. We must embrace the gospel that is revealed in this epistle. We must obey as a Christian church the teaching that is given in this epistle. Not merely because we think it's good for us and we like it. Oh, well, it works, works for me. It may not work for you, but that's okay. It's good for me. No, you must embrace this gospel and follow this teaching, not merely because it seems good to you, but because it's true. It is God's holy word. And if it's not true, it's not good. And if it is true, it's always true. And it's true for everybody. In our postmodern culture today, is not very comfortable with that. That sounds like authoritarianism to me, they say. But my dear friends, listen to me. True divine authority is the only thing that will save us and save this world from authoritarianism. Think with me. Without such a thing as absolute, transcendent truth that never changes, what are we then left with? we're left with a situation which might makes right whoever controls the the narrative this is what we're this is what we're living in today whoever controls the social narrative controls the spin at any given time we're all left to the tyranny of a 50 percent plus one majority what is right is determined by what the majority of people think is right or feel is right or think is best for their own self-interest. And the rest of us are expected to tow the politically correct line or else. You see, it's the denial of absolute truth that leads to authoritarianism and tyranny. But it's recognizing that there is such a thing as absolute, unchanging, transcendent truth 
truth that is true for everyone at all times and all places, and that absolute truth is found in God's word. That's what leads to life and stability and true freedom. So let us settle it from the very beginning that this epistle comes to us with divine apostolic authority, and it is the unchanging, absolute truth of God. And as I close, let's be encouraged, too, that this authority is not for our ill, but for our good. Notice again the language of this opening salutation. There's this emphasis upon his authority as an apostle. He says, Paul is an apostle by the commandment of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but how are they identified? Look at the text. He is God, our Savior, the one who loves us and sent his son to die for us, the one who saves us from our sins and reconciles us to him. He is God, our Savior. How does he identify the Lord Jesus? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. In Christ we have hope, both in this life and the certain hope of the glory that is yet to come for all who are in him. And this this God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, are the source of what? He doesn't just say greetings there. He says grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor to the ill-deserving, to those who deserve just the opposite. That grace by which he sent his son to die for our sins and reconciles him to, uh, us to himself. Grace, mercy, God's concern and love and his compassion toward us in the misery that sin has brought into our lives, rescuing us from that misery. Grace, mercy, and peace. Peace with God and the peace of God, keeping and guarding our hearts in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my dear friend, the God who sends his authoritative word to you through his apostles and expects you to pay heed to it, This God is a God who loves you, a God who saves sinners who call upon him for mercy. There is hope in Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ, our hope. Hope for even the chief of sinners. As Paul says later in this chapter in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And there is hope and salvation for you if you will come to him and put your trust in in him. Well, I hope this has stirred up your interest and your appetite uh, for God willing, if he spares us our study of the first epistle to Timothy in the days to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. It's so wonderful. It's so rich. It's so blessed. We thank you, Lord, for feeding our souls from the scriptures. We pray you continue to direct us and teach us and give us believing, obedient hearts, and also we pray that we would grow in our appreciation for your great love by which you have loved us and saved us from our sins. We thank you indeed for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, for the grace, mercy, and peace that you have freely given to us who are in him. We pray for those who do not know him, that you would draw them to him by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, 
and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.